Well, hello there, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Practices Podcast. Uh, that sounds weird to say after a while. Um, I know it's been quite a bit since I posted my last episode, uh, which is funny because, uh, you know, gotten a lot of really great feedback from people and very thankful. And this is something that I'm passionate about and want to continue doing. Uh, but however, um, you know, even have a couple episodes in the hopper, like ready to go. Um, but however, I have just been taking some time, uh, really taking time, uh, because of this season and this year. Uh, I think everyone, you know, everyone's experienced some hardship, you know, it's, it's basically a meme at this point that 2020 is difficult and hard and all of that. Um, but I've been taking some time from social media, just kind of fasting from it, uh, especially with, uh, the election coming up, uh, as I'm recording this, uh, the election, uh, you know, people will start voting, you know, it'll be November 3rd on, you know, in five hours. It's about 7 p.m. here on November 2nd, and uh, I already voted, voted a long time ago, just turn in my ballot via the mail, and sayonara, see you later. Um, but I know for a lot of people, this year would have been hard enough if it was just an election year. This year would have been enough heaviness uh, and enough anxiety and you know, strife and divisiveness, uh, division, uh, even if it was just an election year, and yet so much more happened than that. Um, so what is this episode about? This will not be a typical episode, no no theme song, no ads, none of that. Um, this has been something that I've been mulling over and honestly praying and really thinking over whether I should even do this. Um, because politics is such a touchy subject. Um, but I believe that at the end of the day, you know, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, right, uh, that, that has implications for every single part of your life. There's nothing that's off limits from him. Uh, and there's nothing, you know, that's off limits from, you know, your formation into Christ-likeness, you know, uh, you know, the gospel itself has political implications and implications for all other parts of life. So as Christians, we need to be able to talk about it. And, uh, so that's what I'm going to do, uh, with a lot of humility and just the hope that, uh, you guys would be able to hear me. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not someone who is about to, uh, tell you who I voted for or endorse a candidate or any of that, you know, if you know me well enough, you know my convictions and you know how I feel. Um, but what I want to accomplish just during this short time, we'll see if it's short. Uh, what I want to accomplish during this time is I want to ask a couple of important questions, break down some myths, kind of take us through a couple of things, uh, you know, that I believe are maybe hindering us from truly following Jesus well when it comes to the realm of politics. 
uh, or maybe some of us are really, you know, we're voting well or we're following Jesus well or we're running, you know, running everything through that filter of following Jesus. But maybe, uh, you know, maybe you know someone uh, who could use some help with discourse or conversation or practices. Or maybe you're just like me and you're feeling very, very anxious about tomorrow, uh, election day. Uh, I'm feeling all the anxiety, uh, not because I'm I'm not afraid, you know. I mean, there's a little bit of fear, obviously, you know, within anxiety, but I'm not ultimately afraid. Like, I know I'm going to be okay, but uh, I... I fear just for, you know, I fear for discourse and civility and uh, the love of one another and people being able to see humanity in each other. Uh, so I believe that a lot of these conversations are important. And ultimately, guys, I believe that the church is the hope of the world, that the church's vocation is to uh, be a part of culture and uh, be a redemptive force and be a creative minority. So, uh, with that in mind, uh, here are some questions that, you know, I wrestle with as I observe kind of our political landscape. Okay. So I wrestle with questions like, who are we following or who or what are we being discipled by? Who are we being formed into the image of? Because, you know, since many churches or many Christians are unable to speak out uh, or unwilling to speak out uh, politically, um, I believe that people are obviously finding their formation on how to politically engage in other places. Uh, so, for example, uh, people are being discipled by Fox News or CNN in their political engagement, or even maybe their whole lives, sadly, uh, rather than being discipled by the church and by Jesus and apprenticing under Jesus and, you know, being formed into the image of Jesus, rather being formed into the image of fill in the blank, fill in the candidate's name, fill in the party's name. Uh, we ultimately need to ask, right, where our allegiances are. Are they, you know, do we... Do we pledge allegiance, you know, ultimately to a country or to a political party first? Or do we pledge allegiance to the kingdom of God and Jesus being the king, the crucified king? Uh, these are just some questions that I want to ask honestly. Uh, they're not things that I have fully figured out either. Uh, so I just want to ask everyone listening for a lot of grace um, and just know that these are things that I wrestle with myself all of the time and I just think they're very important things to bring up. So uh, those are some of the questions for reflection that I've been asking myself. Um, and then here's some, the next kind of part that I want to just talk about uh, are some political myths that I'm hearing or that I've, you know, maybe grown up and, you know, I learned something and I was like, wait, it doesn't have to be that way or something like this. So the first myth is the fact that uh, if you're a Christian, you have to be a Republican. That's just simply untrue. Um, you know, but Brandon, abortion, that is the, that's probably the very first thing that people go to. And I, 
I am vehemently pro-life and I understand and empathize with where conservative Christians are at on that. Uh, and I, you know, just cards on the table, I don't consider myself a Republican or a Democrat. So there it is. Uh, but you don't have to be a Republican in order to be a Christian. Uh, and the reason I believe that is because I believe that Jesus cares about issues on both sides. And I believe that both sides, uh, both parties, uh, have things that uh, they do right in accordance with the way of Jesus. And uh, both sides do things that I believe are inherently against the way of Jesus. And there are even things that both sides agree on that are also against the way of Jesus. So uh, to say, based on one issue or another issue, that, you know, you have to be a Republican or even you have to be a Democrat in order to be a Christian, uh, that's simply untrue. So that's the first myth. Another myth uh, is just making certain things binary or contingent upon each other that aren't. Um, so one thing that I have heard a lot is that, um, well, a, a vote for third party or a non-vote is a vote for Donald Trump or a vote for third party or a non-vote is a vote for Joe Biden this time. I heard that last time around as well. Uh, and here's the deal. If people on both sides are saying things like that, then guess what? Neither is true. It's not true. Um, you can conscientiously object uh, voting for both candidates. We have choices here. Um, uh, I think, you know, I think every person should try and be as thoughtful as they can. But here's the deal. If you cannot bring yourself to vote for either candidate, you don't have to. Uh, you don't have to get trapped in that binary. If anyone tries to trap you in that binary, that is, you know, I, you know, and there are people that I've talked with that totally disagree with me. They're like, no, you should vote for either one or you're just throwing it away. Uh, I don't believe you're throwing away. I believe you're actually standing for something and you're advocating for a third way. Uh, and pr protesting your vote is a vote, I believe. Uh, if, if we protested our votes more, we would get a better choice of candidates straight up. So, all right. So there's that. <coughs> all right. So uh, I've had a cold. It's not COVID. I swear I've gotten tested like two or three times. But all right. So the very last kind of myth to break down is this whole notion of bringing up politics or being political, right? So growing up, you know, just kind of growing up in normal like conservative Christianity, right? I kind of was taught that you should kind of leave politics out of stuff. Uh, and I always thought that was odd. And then I started to learn more about kind of sacred secular divide kind of things where, you know, we make certain things spiritual and certain things secular. And I thought that was even weirder. Uh, and I think these two things really tie together because, uh, first of all, I don't believe that there is a sacred secular divide. I believe that everything that we do is important and everything that we do has implications when it comes to following Jesus. Like I just said, the gospel has all of these implications. Uh, so our politics, first of all, have those implications. Second of all, I believe that politics are important because uh, they influence people who are elected who enact policies who affect, or in those policies affect people. 
straight up. So politics are important because they are how we function as a society and they affect, you know, how we basically how this whole thing by thing, I just mean like, you know, our world, our society, like our, our discourse, like politics matter because it's how things work. (laughs) It, It politics just means, you know, pertaining to a polis. That was the, I believe the Greek word. Uh, but yeah, it's just how things work, how stuff goes on, how we deal with people. So, uh, being, being political, uh, really, in my opinion, ties a little bit in with that whole sacred secular thing, because uh, I believe that the gospel has political implications, just like it has implications for every other part of life. So life is holistic. When we follow Jesus, it affects everything. All right. So, and then there's the notion of being political versus being partisan, right? So as Christians, I believe that the gospel is political and we are called to be political. We're called to engage we are called to, uh, you know, fight for vulnerable people. We are called to uh, overcome evil with good, right? All these things from Scripture, Romans 12, overcoming evil with good. But, uh, so we are called to be political, but we are not called to be partisan. <coughs> and uh, what I mean by that is uh, we're called to engage in discourse and be a part of it, but we're not called to just blindly follow a political party. You know, there might be a party that you consistently uh, identify yourself with way more uh, than another party, uh, whether it's based upon just like, you know, economics or uh, whether you think the government should be, you know, a part of things or whether you think the government should leave you alone, all that kind of stuff. Uh, you might resonate with a party a little bit more. But what I, from what I've been seeing, guys, uh, especially just from 2016 and then, you know, this season, uh, it's clear that our nation is close to as divided as ever. You know, maybe, you know, maybe only the Civil War kind of beats where we have recently been at, like, to be honest. And, uh, you know, and I've heard way smarter people give statistics and all that to, prove that, but, uh, you know, I'm just going off of, you know, from what I've seen, um, our nation is as divided as ever. And I believe it's because, you know, first of all, like as Christians, we are allowing our partisanship or our political parties to disciple us rather than being disciples of Jesus that we see, things through the filter of I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat instead of seeing things through the filter of I'm a Jesus follower. Uh, And I believe that's a problem. And I fall into that. And uh, I believe that most people end up falling into that at some point. And we need to be able to take a step back and look at things with a clear head and a sober mind and really run everything through the filter of like, am I following Jesus? Am I doing what Jesus did in order to become more like him? All right. So those are those myths, right? Those are those things we kind of wanted to break down. And then now I kind of have like three, four points uh, of things. And some of them are just encouragements. Some of them are uh, things, you know, that make the church unique, all of that. All right. So the first thing is, 
the allegiance of a follower of Jesus is to the kingdom of God. Okay? And essentially, that this one's really simple. We're citizens of the kingdom first and foremost. We follow Jesus. We apprentice under him. And we are the witness to the world and we're salt and light. You know, that's what Jesus says in Matthew 5. We're salt and light. Like, we... Like God cares deeply about the church's witness to the rest of the world because guess what, guys? The church has done a whole lot of damage to that witness through partisanship and through getting in bed, you know, proverbially with a certain political party or with the other political party. And that's not okay. God's not okay with that. God wants to protect the witness of his church. And we need to call out idolatry whenever we see it within the church, right? So, and so we're citizens of the kingdom first and foremost. We are the witness to the world. We're salt and light. And we practice the way of Jesus, right? And what that means, and this is honestly, this is language of the last probably five years that I've heard this language, but we're to practice the way of Jesus in the way that we follow who he is as revealed in scripture and we do what he did. We look at how he acted. We look at his life pace, his temperament, and we look at his way and we follow it. There's a reason, there's a reason why Christians were called followers of the way. I think that's like such a cool punk rock name, by the way. I think we need to bring that back and just kill evangelical and Christian. I think follower of the way is far cooler, (laughs) but yeah, we're to practice the way of Jesus Uh, at all costs, and we're to, you know, do as Jesus did. All right, so that's our first thing. The allegiance of a follower of Jesus is to the kingdom of God. All right, this second one is cool. So (coughs) this second one is, uh, it's, I took it from a Tim Keller piece, which Tim Keller is just this brilliant pastor. Um, he does ministry in New York, uh, at Redeemer Presbyterian. And, uh, Tim Keller basically finds five features that made the early church unique. Uh, so I want to run us through those features. And then it's really interesting kind of how they divvy up as far as uh, partisan ethics goes. Like some of them kind of sound more Republican. Some of them kind of sound more Democrat. And one is just, you know, too extreme for all of us. So let's see. All right. So the first one, ready? The church was multi-ethnic and multiracial and experienced a unity across boundaries that was startling. All right, so you hear that? Multi-ethnic, multiracial, very diverse, unity. Very cool. All right, second one, ready? The church was nonviolent and non-retaliatory. The church was nonviolent and non-retaliatory. All right, so number three, the church was famous for its hospitality to the poor and the suffering. Cared for the poor, cared for the marginalized and the vulnerable. All right, number four. It was a community committed to the sanctity of life. And I want to add here, from the womb to the tomb. No doubt about it. They saw the image of God in each person. And they recognized that each person is made in God's image. Straight up, Imago Dei. All right, and number five was uh, the church was a sexual counterculture. They had a strict sexual ethic. They lived completely different kinds of lives uh, than people outside the church. 
All right, so let's break that down. So I've heard a couple other pastors do this, and I just thought I would steal this idea from them because I think it's brilliant, and I think it shows that following Jesus, you do not fit into this two-party system. All right, so there are five of these, and what's interesting is two of them sound more conservative, two of them sound more liberal based on kind of modern uh, partisan lines, and then one is just too extreme for anybody. Ready? All right, so conservative, ready? Uh, the sexual counterculture, having a strict, a strict sexual ethic, uh, and then a community committed to Imago Dei and the sanctity of life. Both of those things sound a little bit more conservative, right? As far as policies, as far as all of that, you know, which, by the way, this is, this is the church. This isn't even the government. So, all right, so those are the two that sound a little bit more conservative. And then... The two that sound a little bit more liberal, according to modern partisan ties, is uh, the church was multi-ethnic, multi-racial, and experienced unity across boundaries, right? So they were they were for elevating, you know, and making everyone even at the foot of the cross, right? And this one actually kind of ties into the other one, too. The church was famous for its hospitality to the poor and the suffering. So they cared about marginalized people. And so... Do you see how that dynamic would work well? Especially, like, imagine here in America, right? Like, you know, people who, you know, the people who are marching, you know, just trying to say that they matter. Uh, Like, the church was multi-ethnic, multi-racial, and it was famous for its hospitality of the, for hospitality for the poor and the suffering uh, and the marginalized. So, Conservative, you had the strict sexual ethic, you had the committed to the Imago Dei, sanctity of life, and then you had the liberal, which was multi-ethnic, multi-racial, and then uh, famous for the hospitality uh, to the poor and the suffering. And then there's the fifth one, right? That no one really is, you know, within American politics, which is the church was nonviolent and non-retaliatory. This is something that a lot of people, this is a whole different podcast episode. <laughs> um, just the, the very fact that Jesus calls us not to retaliate. And the very fact that, uh, you know, among the first three, four hundred years of the church, right? They were arguing about a whole lot of things. They were trying to figure out what books were in the Bible. They were trying to figure out some creeds, all sorts of stuff. And yet most most early church peeps could agree on the fact that peace was, there's not a way to peace. Peace is the way. Nonviolence, non-retaliation. So that's just too extreme for anyone, which in my opinion might just be why uh, it's the way of Jesus, right? So it's just a very interesting dynamic, right guys, that we have these five things that, you know, there are features marked, you know, unique by the early church. You know, the multi-ethnic, multi-racial. Uh, they were non-violent, non-retaliatory. Famous for its hospitality for the poor and the suffering and the marginalized. Committed to the sanctity of life and the Imago Dei. And then it was a sexual counterculture. All five of those things. Some of them sound like conservative. Some of them sound liberal. Some of them just sound straight up crazy, but I think that's awesome. All right, so that's kind of my second thing. Uh, the third thing that I really want to 
just move into is this is called the practices podcast and we really need something, uh, or let's just say I, I need something helpful for this season. Uh, I need things that I can do to help me cope. Uh, because I think no matter what happens, there will be a sense of grief, right? Uh, and you know, I, I don't fear, like I said, like I, I don't fear for my own life. Uh, I fear a little bit for other certain elements going on, but like ultimately I trust Jesus. Um, but I want to be able to have uh, practices in my life to help me uh, deal with the ongoing commotion and divisiveness. Uh, so here are a couple of practice that, practices that I've kind of come up with as well as stuff that I've kind of already been doing. Um, so the first one is prayer and fasting. So... Fasting is a discipline, you know, that many people don't do or don't talk about. Uh, but I think that it is, I don't know, it's really helped me uh, in this past season. Uh, I've been fasting from social media and trying to take some of the time that I would spend on social media, on Instagram, scrolling through, whatever, uh, taking a lot of that time throughout the day to pray and uh, pray for our country, pray for. Uh, that, you know, pray for unity within the church, uh, not uniformity, right? Pray for diversity, uh, but uh, pray for peace. Um, but when you fast, you know, when you fast either from social media or maybe you literally fast and you fast from food, uh, bringing yourself to that place uh, is a really cool thing because it, it, it brings your whole body into that posture. And if you know me, guys, I love food so much. <laughs> so, like, I'm like, I love food so much. So I love Jesus a lot and I'm trying to love Jesus as much as I love food, but oh my gosh, sometimes I can't, but I, I've been trying more and more to fast and take time. And, uh, instead of eating, you know, kind of give, give myself a thing where, you know, my body can get to this point where I, I, I know that I need this, I need Jesus and I have this dependence. So, you can pray, pray and you can fast, right? Uh, another kind of prayer that you can kind of do uh, that I love uh, is just this thing called the breath prayer. Uh, and you can kind of come up with a phrase, right? Like like the minute you get stressed or say you see who wins on Tuesday night or you get a bout of anxiety or, you know, fill in the blank. Uh, you can do this thing called the breath, uh, breath prayer where you find a phrase uh, like, come Lord Jesus. That's that's usually my breath prayer. Come Holy Spirit. And you just repeat it to yourself over and over. Come Lord Jesus. Come Holy Spirit. And you just try and center yourself. A lot of people use that as kind of a centering prayer to kind of bring them back to center. Uh, it's been really helpful for me. Uh, and it's something that you can do throughout the day, when you're at work, whatever, in the car. Like, just a time to have communion with the Lord. All right. Another practice is obviously scripture. You can read the Bible. Uh, but what I would advise for you uh, as a listener and just as someone who maybe cares about this like I do, I would advise for you to, uh, to read through specifically Matthew 5 through 7 during this time. Uh, so the Sermon on the Mount, as it's known, uh, it's like Jesus's penultimate sermon. It's his magnum opus. 
Uh, and I believe that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm with Dallas Willard on this one where I believe it's the ultimate vision for Christian life. Uh, and I believe it, if, if you follow it, like things, things change. Like, uh, it's, it's such a subversive sermon too, just talking about enemy love, uh, and you know, it, like the salt and light and like worry and anxiety and prayer. It literally touches on so many things, guys, marriage, like, and it's so subversive and push so much forward. And like, we're still like, we're going to be forever unpacking the Sermon on the Mount because of how profound it is. Because Jesus was not only the savior of the world, was not only a human, fully human, fully God, the dude was also a freaking genius. Okay. <laughs> All right. So Sermon on the Mount. Um, and then these aren't really practices, uh, but I, I found a couple of really awesome tweets uh, a while ago. Not recently. Don't worry. I haven't been on social media, I swear, but uh, I will be to post this, but I found a, a couple of really good tweets that I just figured I would like read off. And these, these are from guys that are far, far, far smarter than me. So, uh, all right, first one is from Scott Sauls. He's a pastor in Nashville. And, he, and it goes like this. It just says, Christian politics. Carefully read the four Gospels. Read Romans and James. Pray and dine with people whose politics differ from yours. Name one or two weaknesses of your own party. Name one or two strengths of the other party. Vote your conscience. Overcome evil with good. That is so good. That's freaking incredible. And then he has a couple of other really good uh, tweets like, uh, passionate Democrats and passionate Republicans from our church both sending me articles all week that a explain their positions biblically and b also lament their own party shortcomings biblically political conviction and political humility a very good sign yes and amen man it is so 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 good and then he even has a tweet on a uh, matthew 5 and 7 he says landed on the sermon on the mount in today's scripture reading I cannot think of a better vision for how Christians can live differently and beautifully in a world filled with so much turmoil, acrimony, and negativity. Matthew 5 through 7, baby. Come on. It's literally so, so good, guys. Like, if I could keep three chapters in the Bible, 5, 6, 7, Matthew, done. Like, it's not even a contest. All right. So, those were some tweets by Scott Sauls. I also want to really read just this Instagram thread from Evan Wickham, who's a pastor in San Diego, uh, brother of Phil Wickham. Uh, but it's just such a good thread, and it shows kind of, you know, it resonated with me because as a Christian, I feel a little politically homeless, you know? And it says, The more I've centered and at home I've become in historic Christian orthodoxy, the more politically bipolar and homeless I've become in our cultural moment. As a Jesus follower in America, I have no legitimate access to a political party that fights both for the life of the unborn child and the life of the caged child at the border. As a Jesus follower in America, I have no legitimate access to a political party that cares deeply about both the scientific concerns about climate change and the economic health of society. As a Jesus follower in America, 
I have no political party that both upholds historic Judeo-Christian one-man, one-woman marriage and looks at LGBTQ people in the eyes, affirms their equal rights and values in society, and fully welcomes them into the ever-transforming family of Jesus. Followers of Jesus are not supposed to be centrist on the American political spectrum. Citizens of heaven inhabit another sphere entirely. This sphere must intersect the American political spectrum in unpredictable and, un- and profoundly <laughs> offensive places, regardless of sides. And guys, that's, that's where I find myself. He, he sums it up so well, Evan does, uh, where, you know, there's this uh, pastor who I love, J.R. Briggs, who he wrote this book called The Sacred Overlap, uh, kind of a Venn diagram image. And uh, he talks about how, you know, what the sacred overlap is, is uh, as Christians, uh, a lot of the time we put two things together. Uh, that's kind of almost a paradox, but it works, uh, you know, like a uh, grace and truth or a love and, you know, justice or like a like a love and uh love and justice or mercy and justice, grace and truth, all the like all of these things that shouldn't quite go together, but somehow do. And that's kind of exactly where we find ourselves as Christians, is we need to be creative because we don't fit the mold of conservative or liberal. There are things that we need to deeply care about, and we're not called to be, we're, we're definitely not called to be just sitting on the sidelines, or we're definitely not called to just be like sitting in the middle either. Yes, we will find ourselves stuck in the middle, but it's because we deeply care about things on both sides. You know, and in my opinion, you know, like in my opinion, Christians are to be extreme in one thing and that's love. So we find ourselves in a place where we have some practices maybe to get through the political season as it's winding down or, you know, as it's reaching its climax and then winding down. Uh, But what are some truths that we can stand on as followers of Jesus? What are some things that, you know, you know, things that I can say as objective truths, not because of my own authority, but because of the authority that Jesus has. Uh, And I believe that I have a couple of those because they're all rooted in scripture, right? So, these are a couple of truths to encourage and challenge followers of Jesus out there, okay? So truth number one, we don't play the us versus them game. Said otherwise is, as followers of Jesus, we are prohibited from classifying anyone as our enemy because One doesn't typically love their enemies, right? Or said differently, right? Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So whether you decide, you know, no matter how you slice it, we're either either prohibited from classifying anyone as our enemy or we're supposed to love that person. We don't play the us versus them game. So no matter where you're at, you can't look at a Republican brother or sister if you're a Democrat and call them enemy 
or look down on them. And you can't look at a democratic sister or brother and you can't look at them as a them. Each person is made in God's image. Even Donald Trump, even Joe Biden, no matter who, each person's made in God's image. And because of that, we do not do the us versus them thing. All right. Second truth is we are, as Christians, to have both compassion and conviction. This is one of those sacred overlap things, right? You know, it's like grace and truth, compassion and conviction. We're to show compassion to everyone. We're to love all. Yet, because of the gospel, because of who Jesus is and like what he represents, because of what he, like the life that he lived, we're to have conviction about that. You know, so in Matthew 25, when Jesus says, you know, I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was in jail. You came to visit me. Like, you better believe we better have conviction about that. Or when he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Or when he presents who is blessed in his kingdom. We're to have both compassion and conviction. Number three, there is not a political party that reflects the kingdom of God. No worldly empire could do that. Let's say that again. So there is not a political party that reflects the kingdom of God. No worldly empire could do that. There are issues on both sides that Jesus would maybe side with. But to put all your eggs in the basket of one political party means that on certain issues, you're standing in opposition. And as followers of Jesus, right, we're not to pick the binary option. We're to pick the third way, the narrow path that leads to life, right? There's not a political party that reflects the kingdom of God. And then the last one, which I think is really important for me to hear and just for all of us is, Guys, we trust Jesus. Jesus is our king. He's our Lord. He's the resurrected king who lived a perfect life, who came as this baby to this teenage girl. Right? He came as a baby. Israel was, was expecting this monarch king to usurp Rome and overthrow them. And little did they know what God's plan was. Jesus lived a perfect life. A life where he served. And, you know, Philippians 2 says that he didn't see his deity as something to be used to his privilege. But he emptied himself and became nothing. He lived a life worthy. He died a death horribly. And he was resurrected. That's it. That's why we trust him. And because we trust Jesus, right? We don't need to fear because perfect love casts out all fear. First John 4, 18, right? When we trust Jesus, we don't need to be afraid of what's going to happen ultimately, right? We have a hope. We have a preview. We know what's going to happen. And we're going to partner with him in his kingdom. 
because he already came to establish it. Perfect love casts out all fear. We trust Jesus. Guys, those are some of my convictions. Uh, I know that this was sloppy. Um, it's been it's been a hard road trying to think these through and trying to even uh, decide whether I should post it and put it down. But uh, ultimately, right, I trust Jesus. I don't look to a president or a political figure to put my hope in. And obviously it matters because people matter and policies are going to affect people and all that kind of thing. But I trust Jesus as much as my doubts tell me not to. I trust Jesus as much as I want to sometimes just put my head down or put all my eggs in the basket of one political party over another. I trust Jesus and his kingdom, right? Because it's better. Because his kingdom is a place where no one is marginalized. No one is set aside. No one is prejudiced against because of the color of their skin. Everyone is protected. Every person, every marginalized person, every vulnerable person. That's what his kingdom looks like. That's what his blessing looks like. So uh, with that in mind, uh, I don't know when you're listening to this or how, but uh, I believe that when Jesus taught us how to pray within the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, it's one of the most powerful prayers to pray corporately. So I just want to invite you or wherever you're at. Um, it's it's 7.45 um, day before the election uh, guys I just want to pray for God's kingdom to come we want his will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven so let's pray this Lord's prayer together and let's just pray this with open hands let's lay down any fears or mistrust that we have let's place any doubts any fears into his hands right now Come, Lord Jesus. Father, that art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive and forgive our trespasses as we have forgiven those who trespass against us. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Hey, grace and peace to all you guys. Remember, 
We trust Jesus.